Hey everyone, good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew and I'm the pastor here on the east side. Our uh, lesson today comes from the letter to the Corinthian church. And so I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And then we'll pray and and, uh, dive into today's text. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Jesus, we um, invite you into this moment. And we ask for um, open ears. And we ask for open minds. We pray that the things that Paul was trying to get across to his readers, that they would transcend time and space, that they would come to us today as a word of hope, as a word of life. So we just invite you into this moment, Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Lenten theme uh, this year is nothing will separate us. It's a a line that comes from Romans 8, which we looked at last week, where Paul asks rhetorically, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists a whole bunch of things. Shall trial or tribulation or nakedness or peril or sword or famine? Um, And then he says, no. And all these things were actually more uh, than conquerors. So in other words, what we're doing during Lent is we're recognizing that the very things which can bring uh, a sense of distance from from God in our hearts or a sense of like uh, isolation or loneliness or shame, that these things actually through Jesus and because of Jesus embracing shame for us, because of Jesus dying on a cross for us, they become things that only move us closer to love, closer to God. Um, It guarantees that nothing, even the worst that life can bring to us, Uh, is greater than God's commitment and zeal to stay close to us, to make all things new. And so we enter the wilderness um, bravely, even anticipating God's redemption. Uh, Today we drop into the opening pages of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth, just a little bit of backstory. I think it's important. Corinth was a major metropolis. It was a port city. It had two very significant uh, seaports. Therefore, it was was a center of trade and business and economic flourishing. It was also a religious center where the Greek and Roman pantheon were worshipped. It, because of this, had a very elaborate system of 
temple uh, services, including temple prostitution and temple feasts. It was, um, as a religious center in its context, a party city in that sense. It was a place you went to go and have uh, a, a good time. It had a bustling economy that was fueled by its strategic location, its seaports, the constant influx of foreign goods and, and travelers, and uh, its, its uh, identity as a destination center for religious pilgrims. And so you can imagine that being a Christian in a space like this would have been pretty difficult. Like it's hard to be a Christian when you live in the French Quarter and every day is Fat Tuesday. It's hard to, to, to navigate that kind of world and culture in this small little community of a few dozen people. We know later from Paul's letter uh, in, in the, to the Corinthian church that they, they were all able to gather at a house together and eat Eucharist with one another. So like, this is a small little group of people in the middle of a major metropolis, a huge cultural center. And understandably, it's hard to be a Christian in that kind of space. It's hard to, to navigate um, a, a city like that and walk in the way of Jesus, this tiny little church, it was just a few dozen people. They, they would be able to gather in a single home with one another and, and hear teaching and take Eucharist. So this was a small group of people, like a neighborhood group. And they are in this massive cultural center with all this going on around them. There's a lot uh, working against them. And Paul, in the opening pages of his letter, what he expands even further is this understanding of why it's so hard to be a Christian in this context. What else is working against them? And what he says essentially is one of the things that's working against them is the message itself. What Christians believe, that what Christians believe in a place like Corinth, in a place in which wisdom and good sense and, and new teaching are held up, it, it is, um, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to just kind of look directly at what that means. What does it mean that the cross appears to be foolishness, that it appears to be a stumbling block? And how do we, um, how do we re-understand it? So first we see the cross in Paul's language is wisdom and not foolishness. The Corinthians were known for their idolization, their fascination with what we're called in this day and age uh, sophists. Uh, that's from the Greek word Sophia, which is the word for wisdom. The sophists were, were um, teachers. They, they were famous, um, uh, eloquent orators who dazzled the masses with their new and novel teachings about life. See, for the Greek-minded person, the primary good of this world was, um, was wisdom, it was not power. And this is one of the reasons why in their context, even as all these other empires rose and fell around them, even uh, centuries after Alexander died and the empire is split and then Rome eventually conquers Greece, even still Greek thought continued to pervade and have dominance in the Mediterranean landscape because of the philosophical schools of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, because of the language that bound the people together, what was called koine or common Greek, and because of an understanding of the universe that actually fueled um, Greek thought around politics and the humanities and arts, so much so that even the New Testament is mostly dealing not with Roman philosophy, but with Greek philosophy when it's making uh, those sorts of claims and, and arguments. So what Paul is saying essentially is that the Corinthian people are in this way, they're mainstream Greeks. They're people who desire and seek wisdom. They want, they want things to make sense to them. And he just says very matter-of-factly, the things that we believe believe as Christians don't make sense. They don't make sense. Death does not lead to life. Tragedy is not a blessing. Failure is not victory. 
But the Christian believes the opposite, of course. Christians are people who do believe that the death of one man led to life for all people, that the lynching of an innocent man became a blessing for all the nations, that the apparent snuffing out of a failed messianic campaign actually was the thing that triumphed over that same imperial power, not merely by conquering that empire with his church, but also by simultaneously overcoming death and the debt of sin and demonic powers. And that doesn't make any sense. That sounds ridiculous. It doesn't square up with how we understand the world. And that's kind of Paul's whole point. It doesn't make sense from our perspective because we know very naturally and for obvious reasons that living and winning and advancing and knowing and gaining and climbing, expanding is desirable and shrinking and dying and falling and failing and losing are things that we want to avoid. But the foolishness of God, he says, is greater than the wisdom of this world. In other words, what God does through Jesus is he takes the things that we avoid, failing, losing, dying, and he uses them to achieve the ends that we have been trying to, but been unable to achieve on our own strength. Human culture has always been seeking in one form or another to find a way towards peace. But in our efforts to obtain peace, we almost always are led to quote unquote necessary conflicts and wars and necessary disempowerment of nations. We have always wanted in some form or fashion to have a just society, but we are unable to create justice or extend justice to marginalized people without disempowering others. We don't know how to actually let justice just be a thing that flows out to all the people. Um, Similarly, we have always wanted to have a prosperous world and a prosperous society, but we have done so not through the mutual flourishing of all peoples, but through arms races, through economic sanctions, through tariffs. We have as human beings always pursued joy, but today we do that through materialism and materialism necessitates that those in the working class are undercompensated for giving us the value and the goods and services that make materialism thrive. We have pursued the good life and we've done so through technology and scientific discovery and simultaneously while pursuing that good life have come up with more elaborate, successful ways of killing other people, creating massive weapons that we can use on our neighbors. In other words, the things that we have pursued, the good things that we have pursued have always, always ended up harming. Rome, Rome sought peace, the famed Pax Romana was something that was enforced and executed at the point of the spear and under the threat of crucifixion. And today's major world powers um, basically achieve the same ends with similar, albeit less overt tactics. God's plan to eradicate injustice, injustice, to eradicate the broken things, to bring about the world that we all long for, the world that we know must exist, even if we have no evidence for it. He does so through the very suffering, dying, perishing agony and justice that we spend all of our lives running from. In short, in the cross, God let the worst imaginable thing happen to him and he just took it. He let it take him all the way to its fatal lethal conclusion. And then three days later, he very nonchalantly got up, made his bed, literally, it tells us in John 20, made his bed and went about making new creation. 
the greatest terrible thing in the world was not enough to slow down the advancement of God's generative goodness on the earth. The reason that God's quote-unquote foolishness is greater than the world's quote-unquote wisdom is because God's way actually worked. And all the things that we pursued aren't. They work a little bit, or they work for some. They work for a few, but they don't work for all. And simultaneously, while God's way not only works to bring about the world we desire, but he is also able to speak to all of the human suffering and injustice in the world right now and make sense of it. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, It was fitting that God, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Why is it fitting? It's fitting because God simultaneously, in the same stroke, takes the thing that we are all terrified of, that we're all running from, and through it, ends up delivering to all people the thing that they most desire, and simultaneously becomes for us fully human. Because God is not removed from suffering anymore. He's not above it. He is in the middle of it with us. He is, as the, the prophet Isaiah says, a man acquainted with suffering and with grief. The second thing we see in this text is Paul is comparing this idea of power and a stumbling block. And he's arguing that the cross is, is power. It's not meant to be seen or it's not meant to function as a stumbling block. The second group of people that Paul mentions briefly in this passage is the Jews. Now, there were Jews in Corinth. In fact, when Paul first gets to Corinth, and we read about this in Acts 18, the first place he goes is the synagogue. He spends some considerable time in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jewish people who live in Corinth that the Messiah has come. And this makes tons of sense because, again, Christianity is a Jewish sect. Paul was a Messianic Jew. Like, there was never this understanding in the first century church that they were anything other than an extension of the promises of God to his covenant people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was merely the fulfillment of these things in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so now that the Messiah had come, there was time to proclaim to the world the door had been opened to the Gentiles, and they'd all been brought into this promise to Israel. So anyway, he talks about the Jews and almost as a way of saying like, here's why your Greek neighbors aren't coming to church with you because what you say sounds ridiculous. And also here's why your Jewish neighbors aren't coming to church with you either because the gospel each in its own way scandalizes each uh, group. The Jewish people were a proud people, albeit a disempowered people, an exiled people, people with a storied identity and a deep belief in an ultimate destiny, but a people who had for a thousand years played virtually no role on the world stage. Um, they had been a nation conquered again and again by vast empires, scattered over the pre previous millennia. They were a disempowered people. A people who were given um, rights to live on their land, but not to own it. And to be ruled instead by an empire that was located thousands of miles to their west. And Paul simply sums up the Jewish desire with these words. Jews demand signs. Signs of what? Signs that God is for them. Signs that the covenant is still active. Signs that God has not given up on his people. And if you look at the Old Testament literature, especially the poetry literature, which is, which is the Jewish people's expression of their, of their hearts, you see again and again this, this repeated refrain in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in the prophets. For example, 
the Lord, our warrior, the Lord who fought for us, the Lord who led us out of Egypt, the Lord who hurled Pharaoh and his army into the sea, the Lord who conquered the nations of, of Cana, the Lord who, who scatters his enemies. Where are you? What happened to you? Where, when are you going to come back and restore our fortunes? When are you going to bring us back to our inheritance as your people? How long will Zion remain a haunt for jackals and Jerusalem's walls lay on the ground in rubble? When will you restore the honor of your name in your people on the earth? And the Messiah comes, Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom is here now. The kingdom of God, of Israel's God, of Yahweh is now here on the earth. And they say to him, we read this in the the gospels, give us a sign. And he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Jonah, that crazy story about a guy who's swallowed by a fish and spends three days at the bottom of the sea. Jonah, probably Israel's most notorious failure of a prophet, a man who failed and even in his failure still managed to save the city of Nineveh in Assyria, but who begrudgingly did so. Jesus says, uh, essentially no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah, which is to say it's going to look to you like failure. This sign, it's not going to look like success. Let the one who has ears to hear, he says, let them hear. And Jesus keeps his word. Of course, he gives them the sign that they demanded. And the sign does indeed look like failure to them so much so that they couldn't possibly understand it to be a sign from God. And instead it just becomes a stumbling block, something that had they trip over. How can God be good? How can God be for us? How can God be with us? After all, the, the patriarchs and the, and the heroes of the Jewish faith, while there are some who died horrible deaths, many died nobly. Jacob dies surrounded by his sons, laying hands on them. Moses dies on a mountain and is buried by God. Uh, himself. Um, uh, Elijah departs in a chariot of fire. Jesus dies naked and screaming outside of a city, abandoned and humiliated. And from all appearances, this is a rejection, a shame, a failure. And Paul just simply says, Jews demand signs. They're looking for something that says that the power of God is here on the earth. And I'm here to tell you, he says, the cross is the power of God on the earth. In the cross, the powers of this earth are conquered. In the cross, the things that drive and dictate our world are overcome. So what do we do with this? This is a lot of theology. I just threw a ton of theology at you. What do we do with this, though, practically? What is, how does this meet you right now where you are, if you're still with me? I wrote down three things. One, we cannot use the present moment that we're living in as predictive of our ultimate moment. We cannot use the present moment that we're living in as predictive of our ultimate moment. And let me just say, that is, the, that is a promise that has kept the church alive for millennia. That is a promise that puts songs in the mouths of plantation slaves. We cannot use this present moment as predictive of an ultimate moment. We can believe that there is darkness, that there is uh, pervasive wickedness, that the son of God dies on a cross alone, abandoned, And it's not the final moment. The second thing, the very worst thing that you can experience, that we can experience, therefore has a place in a divine drama in which what the enemy means for evil in your life, God turns it for good. So we looked at last week. We know that God works all things together, even our sins for good to those who love him. So the very worst thing that happens to you, the very worst thing has a part in a divine drama in which God is going to heal and rescue you and turn it to good. And then thirdly, 
most of what you and I are currently setting our hope in, though. Even if we attain it, we'll fail to deliver on the promises that we've infused it with. Most of what you and I are looking to come through for us right now, and we all have different things. Success or health or just getting through this pandemic or being married or having children or having a friend group. Most of the things that we are banking ourselves on right now, even when they come to us, and, and this, is the, this, is, this is the witness of human history, even when they come to us, not that they're not good, they just aren't, they're just not all the way what we hoped that they would be. I know a woman who lost her son recently to an overdose. A tragedy that has no silver lining. A cosmic uh, gut punch from a God who failed to intervene, or so it seems. Didn't listen to the prayers that were prayed on this child's behalf, this, this young man's behalf. Failed to answer. Let things run their course. I know a couple who have watched their child grow up into addiction and now feels beyond the reach of hope. They just sort of are always waiting for the phone call that says it's finally over. I know a couple who has been trying to have a child for years and instead have had one miscarriage after another, after another, after another. I know a person who was abused and violated as a child and the trauma of that repeated abuse, even years later, even after years of counseling and hard work, continues to haunt their present day and question their future. Will anyone ever be able to love me? Or am I beyond hope? I know a man who has fought to follow Jesus, and for that, that has meant living a life of celibacy. And the reward for his pursuit of God has actually led to his rejection by the church rather than his acceptance. And he feels abandoned by Christians. What do we say to these things? Where is the hope? What wisdom do these people lack that if we could just give it to them, it would make things better? Like we're all going to have things happen in our life. Some of us are going to have utterly terrible things happen in our life. What version of the world's wisdom is going to possibly meet us in that moment and give us what we need to endure it? To not just come to the conclusion that I guess I've been delivered a bad hand of cards and there's nothing I can do about it. Where is the scribe, Paul says? Where is the debater of the age? The cross is God's answer that thwarts the wisdom of this world because it says that while many of us, maybe all of us, will be able to find joy and life and goodness in this world, it will never meet the deep need and sense that we all have that there is a greater joy, a greater goodness that's always just out of reach, no matter how close we get to it. We'll always feel in some way stymied by the brokenness of the world, which is exactly why God, in his wisdom, embraced that brokenness, took all of it into himself, and then finally finished it off. And so we sing as the church, my hope is built, therefore, not on my circumstances improving, not on getting some sort of acclaim, not on achieving my ends. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The hymn says, I dare not trust even the sweetest frame 
the best moment. I don't put my trust in even the best moment, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so Jesus, we recognize that that is not the way most of us live our life day to day. So help, Lord, us to align ourselves with your wisdom, to be informed and taught by it, to let it shape our minds and hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope I will see you in a few minutes outside for communion. We'd love to worship together, um, to be together. Hope to see you there. Grace and peace. You are loved.